Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. The National Gallery in London acquired Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in 1924. Since then, the famous luminous painting has only left London twice. But now, in a coup for the National Gallery of Australia, Australians have the chance to see sunflowers in a blockbuster exhibition in Canberra. And seeing it live is worlds removed from seeing a reproduction. Spanning 500 years of art, the exhibition, entitled Botticelli to Van Gogh, Masterpieces from the National Gallery London, features 61 paintings by 56 masters, among them Titian, Rembrandt, Monet, Constable and Vermeer. Dr Kathleen Olive joins us today to explain how the NGA managed to secure the exhibition and to give us the lowdown on what to look out for. Kathleen is a literary and cultural historian with a passion for the visual arts. She has a PhD in Florentine Renaissance studies from the University of Sydney. Wonderful to have you back, Kathleen. Thanks for sharing your time with us again. Thank you, Jo. This exhibition, I mean, it's really interesting that the um, National Gallery hasn't really been very keen on sending international tours out in the past. And I believe this is the biggest collection they've ever allowed to travel internationally. So how did it come about? Mm, it's an interesting story. You're quite right. They, the Traditionally, the National Gallery has been very reluctant to loan works. It's expensive. Some of the bequests that are made have as, as part of the conditions of the bequest that things aren't to be loaned. So it can be quite strategically, administratively hard. But in this case, because we were due to have the Tokyo Olympics last year, it was thought that it would be a lovely act of diplomacy, essentially, to send a wonderful selection of works from the the National Gallery in London to Tokyo for the Olympics. And so obviously that was delayed um, with the with the events of last year, but Tokyo had the exhibition, they, they enjoyed the exhibition, and then as a kind of a, a corollary benefit, Australia got to, uh, to put in a bid to have the exhibition too, and that's how we've ended up with it at the National Gallery in Canberra. So I believe while uh, we were waiting here, the, the NGA actually did some refurbishments of the mm. gallery space. Mm, they did, yes. So they've um, the the traditional area that they use for their big temporary blockbuster exhibitions. They did a fair amount of work uh, redesigning the interior in order to accommodate this exhibition, which came with its own trajectory, its own themes, and so they've tailored the exhibition space to the themes uh, of the show. I believe they've used sort of state-of-the-art technology so the paintings are really beautifully lit. Oh, the lighting is absolutely fantastic. There are some works in the exhibition that you you look at them and, and they seem to have this glow coming from within the painting. And so where often in exhibitions, big temporary exhibitions, there's, you know, flare on the glass. It can be quite difficult to see the works, not at all in this case, particularly Sunflowers by Van Gogh. That's just beautifully, beautifully lit. So tell us about the exhibition that we haven't really talked what's in it. So just give us an idea of, you know, the range of work that, that people will see. So it's 61 paintings, which might not sound like much, but when you think about a collection of the uh, the quality of the National Gallery's collection in London, we're talking about 61 excellent paintings. There's not a single work in the exhibition that you think, well, that's a little bit unimpressive. So 61 paintings of the highest quality, almost no repetition of artists. So there's a there are a few, just a two or three artists who have more than one work 
in the exhibition. So it's a, a very representative range of painting from Western Europe. So it's very focused on the Western European art canon, starting in about 1400 with the moment that we would describe as the Italian Renaissance, this traditional idea that that's when European art finds its roots again, returns to a kind of a classicism and a naturalism in style. And then it follows that right through to about 1900, which we would usually see as a moment where Western European art actually breaks with that tradition and becomes more interested in abstraction uh, and a style that we might describe as modern. So it's really tracing that development of Western European painting. So it's divided into different rooms, I believe. Right, so there's seven rooms overall and each room has a very clear theme. The themes aren't necessarily related. We can look for connections and find connections, but each room is also uh, stands, stands alone in its own right. So we move from the Italian Renaissance in the first room through to Dutch Golden Age painting, British portraiture, the Grand Tour, uh, Golden Age Spanish painting, and English landscape, and then finally uh, we have the the modern room, so the break with all of that tradition from before. So do you think this selection um, is a good little showcase of what the um, gallery actually has at home in its, you know, its entire collection. Absolutely. So the director of the gallery, Gabriele Finaldi, has described uh, this, this loan collection from the National Gallery in London. He's described it as a, a trajectory of Western European art, the finest examples of Western European painting. And it certainly, certainly is that. There are a lot of works that people who are familiar with the gallery in London won't actually remember seeing because they have a very large collection of over 2,000 paintings. So 61 is a fraction of 2,000. So there'll be things that are new for people, but there are also some wonderful old favourites. So there's a very nice balance struck between things that we we remember seeing in the gallery in London or things that we've seen in countless reproductions, like the sunflowers, for example, but there are also some really wonderful surprises that I think very few of us will have seen before, and that's a delight to see those. So tell us about sunflowers. I, I, I haven't been to the exhibition yet, but I believe it just looks so, so different when you actually see it there rather than in a reproduction. It, it really does. So it's one of those images that I think one of those modern art images that has been reproduced in so many different ways. We've seen it in, in virtual reality exhibitions or we've seen it come to life in animated films and to see it beautifully lit down the end of an enfilade of rooms in the exhibition, which is how it's hung, is absolutely wonderful. It has this real life and energy and vibrancy. Each petal of each flower seems to just burst out of the small frame. It's an it's an absolute highlight of the exhibition, which surprised me. It wasn't something that I, I thought would necessarily be a highlight. I thought it might be a little bit of a banal end, but it absolutely is, and it's a real treat to see it and be able to get up very close, see all of the texture that Van Gogh incorporated into a work like that. And it's a subject that he returned to numerous times. Uh, so it's also interesting to think about how he... He developed the work over time and he was clearly very pleased with it because he ended up hanging the particular example that's in Canberra. He hung that in the bedroom to welcome Gauguin when his friend Gauguin came to visit him on quite a fateful trip in the south of France. That was what he chose to decorate the room with, so he was clearly quite proud of it. What about uh, some of the other highlights or your personal oh, highlights? 
There are a lot of highlights. I mean, it, essentially, it's 61 highlights. That's how right. they've, they've approached <laughs> yeah. the exhibition is by choosing 61 paintings where you stop in front of each painting and say, wow. But to find a highlight of highlights, I would suggest that in the very first room, there's a wonderful exhibition, a wonderful example, rather, of um, late 15th century Italian painting. And that's a very complex and rewarding painting uh, by Carlo Crivelli. It's called The Annunciation. And it's just jam-packed with lots and lots of detail. It's quite a large painting, so it's very easy to get up close, have a good look at it, study all of the detail. Uh, And so for me, that was a real highlight to be able to see it so easily uh, when it's a work of such high quality. But then there were surprises as well. So I, I was surprised by the work that was included by Constable. It's a landscape by Constable uh, of a, a, a dark wood essentially with a cenotaph in it uh, and uh, it's all browns and and uh, dark maroons and orange and yellow uh, and it's very very different to the type of landscape we expect to see from Constable who's Hay Wayne I'm sure most people uh, can call to mind a really iconic English landscape painting so it's very very different to his usual style it's quite a small painting but again uh, you you see that in reproductions and you think oh uh, you know a study in brown not so interesting, but when you get into the exhibition and see it so beautifully lit, as you said, it comes to life with all of this flickering of autumnal light. So that was definitely a highlight for me. What about the Rembrandt self-portrait? I mean, many people think it's one of the greatest portraits ever painted. Yeah, absolutely. There's a um, a huge psychological intensity in the portrait as he gazes out at you. A lot of care and attention that he's put into building up the layers of paint on on his own face with his skin so that you get a reddish kind of a ruddy bloom through his cheeks and his, his nose. Um, maybe saying something a little bit about his personal habits at the age of 34, but um, the, the sense of texture in the work is absolutely beautiful. If you, if you get in very close to that painting in the gallery, you can even see where he turned the brush around to, uh, to dig into the canvas, into the layers of wet paint, each individual strand of hair on the back of his own neck. So it's a, that's a very, very beautiful portrait. And it's not very often that we have the opportunity to get up close to a Rembrandt and, and look so closely at his working method, at his technique. And you can certainly do that in this exhibition. And he chose to dress himself in clothes from a century ago or decades earlier anyway. Uh, Why did he do that, do you think? It's quite a performative portrait. So in some ways he's not showing himself as we might see a self-portrait in a photograph. It's a carefully constructed image of himself. He's consciously wearing outdated clothes, as you say. And the other thing that he's consciously doing is he's consciously modelling his self-portrait at 34 on earlier self-portraits. So he's thinking about a very famous portrait by Raphael uh, of a particular humanist, Baldassare Castiglione, who's shown wearing the identical hat that Rembrandt is wearing in that self-portrait at 34. And he's also thinking about a wonderful portrait by Titian that we also know he had had the opportunity to see. And the, the great thing is that that portrait by Titian ended up in the National Gallery's collection as well. So it's not in the exhibition in Canberra, but the the wonderful thing is that they have both the original portrait by Titian 
and they've ended up with this uh, work by Rembrandt that was so inspired by Titian. So uh, they, they're able in such a monumental collection like that, they're able to close some of those gaps uh, in art history. It's wonderful to think about those. Another highlight for me would be the room dedicated to Spanish Golden Age paintings. So there are these moments in the exhibition where you see the British discover something first. So you see them discover Canaletto, for example, in the Grand Tour room, or you see them discover a new type of landscape painting in the work by Turner that's in the exhibition. But in the Spanish Golden Age room, you actually see Britain come late to a party. So when it comes to the 17th century in Spain, Spanish art was really prized in places like the Low Countries or in Italy. It was recognised immediately as, as being a really important style and movement, the work of people like Velázquez or de Zerberan, for example, and they're both represented in the exhibition in Canberra. But in fact, in England, the taste takes a little while to catch up, and it's not until 1813 when the British are helping in the Peninsular War that Wellington captures uh, Joseph Bonaparte's baggage train and is given some of the paintings in the baggage train that Joseph Bonaparte's trying to loot from Spain. He's given those paintings as a, as a gift by, by Spain and he takes them back to England. And not just uh, Wellington, also a number of his the people fighting for him also take back Spanish artwork. And so it's not until the 19th century that the British really discover golden age painting, that 17th century Spanish art. So I found that room really interesting because it's telling that part of the story as well. There's a beautiful portrait by Goya of the Duke of Wellington, and he kind of ushers you into this room where you see the British not not discovering someone for the first time, but actually coming a little bit after the rest of Europe and realising that the Spanish are just real innovators when it comes to how they use light in the 17th century, how they conjure human emotions and extreme responses uh, that people can have to events in their life, and also how they rediscover technique as well. So what they do with individual brushwork and layering up of paint is really interesting. So for me, that room was a real highlight. I think sometimes the surprise is seeing the size as well. I mean, I love Vermeer's paintings, but when you see them, they're so small. Is that the case with the the one in this exhibition? Absolutely. So the Vermeer in the exhibition is a young, it's called A Young Woman Seated at the Virginal, and that's a very small painting, yes. I love that piece. And that's slightly mysterious, isn't it? You know, there's a debate about who, who is the girl. It, slightly mysterious is a great way to think about that painting. So they've, uh, as with all Vermeers, you know, we have so few works by Vermeer that survive. We know that he spent a lot of time working very, very carefully on each piece, working quite slowly in some cases. And so they've done a lot of technical analysis on this painting. The National Gallery, again, is in the position in London to have two works by Vermeer, one of a young woman seated at a virginal, which is what's in the Canberra exhibition, and the other one is a is a painting of a young woman standing... <laughs> at a virginal. So they've got these two uh, two paintings on the same subject. A virginal is a, a part harpsichord, part keyboard instrument uh, that, that uh, accomplished young women were encouraged to learn how to play. And the two paintings are quite similar. They're, they're in theme uh, and, uh, and also in technique. And so research that the National Gallery has done recently showed that the two paintings are painted on canvas cut even from the same bolt of cloth. So they, they seem to be uh, related. But as you say, the one that's on display in Canberra is 
quite mysterious because in the background of this charming drawing room with a, an elegant young woman looking out at us as she plays a musical instrument, in fact, hanging on the wall, there's a, a painting by an earlier artist, um, a Vermeer shows us a painting that we know his mother, mother-in-law actually owned uh, at one point in time, and that's a painting showing uh, the scene of a, a young woman being uh, sold by a procuress to a, a man who's interested in more than her musical ability. Oh, yes. <laughs> so that's a really unusual painting to have hanging in the background of an elegant young woman, virtuous young woman's uh, drawing room. So as you say, it's quite a mysterious painting, very, very small, and displayed on a wall with only two other paintings. So there's plenty of room around it, plenty of opportunity to get up close and think about some of the fine detail, which we know was very important to Vermeer, incorporating all of that detail into his works. So tell us about the bequest, because I think the Vermeer came from, was it the Salting Bequest? Yes. Who is an Australian man. Yes, this is one of the really interesting things about the exhibition is that some of these artworks in in a, some kind of way are almost coming home, not that they'd ever been to Australia before. So George Salting was a reasonably eccentric uh, Danish-Australian. Uh, he died in 1909. And so uh, at, towards the end of the 19th century, his family had made good money in trade in Australia, uh, enough money, in fact, for his Danish father to educate George and his brother at Sydney Boys Grammar. And then from Sydney Boys Grammar, he went on to uh, the University of Sydney. He studied classics. Uh, he was a, a gentleman scholar. But the family left for England due to ill health of some of the family members. And in fact, Salting never returned here. But he spent his time in England very wisely collecting antiquities, decorative art objects, and a lot of wonderful paintings, including particularly he had an interest in Dutch Golden Age painting. So when he died in 1909, he left an enormous collection to the National Gallery and they divided it. Uh, they sent some of the uh, works of antiquity and his prints and drawings to the British Museum, and that's still there. And they sent his Chinese and Japanese uh, porcelain and pottery to the V&A, and that's still there. And they kept some of the best paintings for themselves. And so about five of the works in the Dutch Golden Age room in Canberra were actually as a result of the Salting Bequest. And it's their first time here, despite uh, the fact that when Salting died, and left that bequest to the National Gallery, there were requests from Australia back in 1909 to perhaps send the bequest, the entire bequest down here and establish a national collection here from the Salting bequest. But those those requests weren't heard. Uh, so this is the first time those, those artworks have managed to travel to Australia. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> what about British portraiture? Because I I know, I, I saw you were saying that you feel in many ways that might be the heart of the exhibition, mm. that room of I the do. British portraits. I do, yes. So it's maybe, it's maybe not a moment in art that many of us have looked at or have thought about before. Uh, all of the endless portraits that decorate grand country houses and we, we tend to walk past those kinds of paintings, I think, because they don't often grab us. But that room for me is the heart of this exhibition because it shows the kind of people who built up these collections of art uh, that they then left in various circumstances 
to this new national collection in the 19th century. So in some ways, those are the people that you see in the in the room full of British portraits. Those are the people for whom the, the National Gallery, it was really through their work that it could become a reality in London. So in that sense, for me, it's the heart of the exhibition. And there are some wonderful portraits in that room as well. For me, a standout was Gainsborough's portrait of Sarah Siddons, the tragic uh, actor, uh, one of the finest tragic actors of her day, who at the time when he paints her portrait was engaged in playing Lady Macbeth. And there's something of Lady Macbeth in the portrait of her. She's very, very proud, very, very resolved. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful portrait of her. Although Gainsborough is said to have uh, said to have commented that painting her nose was a, a challenge. <laughs> Oh, it's, it is a slightly long nose, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, as you said earlier, um, Gabriel Finaldi, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it, but he said that he th- would like to think that this exhibition is the history of picture making in Western Europe, and yet there are no paintings by women in this exhibition. No, not at all, or by any artists of colour. So it's a big statement when you stand out there and say this is representative of an entire moment. And in many ways it is. And so the fact that there are no paintings by women and that there are no paintings uh, by artists of colour is in fact representative of the Western European canon. It didn't include for centuries and centuries. It didn't include works by women. It didn't include works by artists of colour. It really only included work by men uh, of a certain age from uh, from a Christian tradition. So it is very representative of that trajectory of Western European art. It doesn't really interrogate more recent uh, directions that scholarship has taken in terms of trying to recover the contributions of those other long-ignored artists. But that's just generally a historic challenge that the National Gallery has to has to face with respect to its whole collection. That's, that's an issue that isn't just confined to the 61 paintings in Canberra. This is a a challenge that faces most great national collections around the world at the moment are trying to grapple with how they go back into that historic tradition and start to tell things that are slightly different stories about that tradition that we haven't heard before. We're now seeing this um, exhibition in a different landscape because of COVID. Um, Do you think that there'll be a renewed interest in visitors in blockbuster shows, given that, I mean, travel is, you know, it's it's not going to be as easy as it was, even if we start travelling again, and it'll probably be more expensive. So do you think maybe the blockbuster has got, you know, renewed life ahead now? I think that's a really interesting question, and my suspicion is that the answer is yes. This is a moment in which galleries have had to close around the Northern Hemisphere, they've had to close their doors to in-person visitors. You know, the National, as we speak, the National Gallery is closed in London. Uh, The Met is closed in New York. All of these huge collections around the world, all of the National Museums in Italy are closed while, while you and I are having this conversation. So that gives those galleries a unique opportunity to send works to places where COVID, the COVID situation is not being experienced in the same way. So, for example, to Australia, we have a unique, uh, we're in a reasonably unique position here. And so we're also in a unique position to be able to welcome these large large exhibitions, which are going to be an important income stream uh, for these galleries as well. They've Big galleries around the world have long relied on the revenue that they can generate by loaning out exhibitions. But that will also pre- um, present an opportunity to tourism in Australia 
Australia. So I'm sure we'll see more of them in later this year, for example, in Brisbane, we're receiving a wonderful loan exhibition from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So I'm sure this will be a way uh, for those works to travel uh, more freely than we can in this particular moment in time. But I think it will be, as you're suggesting, an ongoing decision as well. So the Uffizi in Florence, which is Italy's most representative museum of this same trajectory of Western European painting, they just announced last week that they're going to start a program called the Uffizi Diffusi, the, the diffused or spread out Uffizi Gallery. In other words, they're going to start loaning works from their collection to regional galleries throughout Tuscany so that people living in a small one-horse town in southern Tuscany have the opportunity to see great works from the Uffizi in their local museum, in their local town hall. So I think you're, I think you're right and that this is in fact going to lead to what, what we might want to call a democratisation uh, of some of these big, big collections and how they seek to make their work known. And um, for the viewer, it's an ideal time because I suppose COVID, fewer people are allowed in at a time. That's true. So the exhibition in Canberra is uh, limited to numbers of visitors that they can have in any one booking slot and booking is uh, obligatory. So the numbers are being really carefully managed in that uh, in that regard. There are also little tricks for jumping queues for people who are members of their own local state gallery, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the National Gallery of Victoria. Those people can jump the queues and get in uh, earlier without having to line up. It is quite a popular exhibition. So they're managing the numbers quite carefully and then um, my recommendation in any big blockbuster exhibition would always be to go to the last room first and work your way back against (laughs) (laughs) work your way back against the crowd and that's pretty amazing we were in Canberra last week with some groups and we managed to have sunflowers entirely to ourselves. so there are even though it's popular because of the the way the numbers are being managed it's possible to have a very intimate experience I think I better book and go. (laughs) (laughs) You must, Jack. It's lovely to talk to you again. Thanks so much for your time. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to join them online for their lectures, short courses and live on-site tours, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.